Uh, your coffee will definitely be ready after the meeting today because somebody else did the coffee machine this morning, so we'll, we'll be sure of that. I should just say, Andrew, I'm sorry, I forgot to give you a notice of meetings that is coming up next weekend. Before COVID, traditionally the assemblies on Tyneside had a missionary conference in September. It was a Friday, Saturday and Sunday. There was meetings Friday, Saturday and Sunday. And they're reinstituting that missionary conference this coming weekend. So there'll be meetings on Friday, Saturday and Monday. And again, on the Monday night, Bensham is the host assembly for that meeting on the Monday night. So on Monday night, that's a week on Monday, which is the 19th of September, we'll be having a special meeting here uh, for the missionary weekend. We'll be hosting it, which means we have to provide the, the, the hall and the catering at the end. So we'll appreciate any help that we can have over, over that particular day. Although I'm just thinking, is that not the same day as the Queen's funeral? It's a bank holiday, so I don't know what the conveners of the conference will do. I'm sure we'll let you know in due course. But if nothing else changes on Monday night, there'll be meetings Friday, Saturday and Monday. If you want to know the details, I can happily give you that to you for them. But on Monday night, we're responsible for the gathering. So just to let you know that. So let's turn to the word of God now and let's look into, first of all, Acts chapter 4. Our subject is the local church and today we're going to think about the institution of the idea of the local church and we'll touch a little bit on the composition of a local church, who composes a local church. If you were to go to a um, Christian bookshop you would find an abundance of how to have a successful church in the 21st century. You could just run easily and pick a book off the bookshelf and you could find a way to have a successful or a popular uh, church in an area. Uh, but really, to be honest with you folks, I'm more interested in what the word of God says. A local church is much more spiritual than just going and following an instruction book. There's not just a procedural part of a local church, but there's also a spiritual part of a local church, which is really important. <laughs> it's so unlike the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the, the children of Israel had a, a prescription for everything. They had it for their family, they had it for their diseases, they had it for their houses, they had it for their religion, they had it, and it was just easy. And they were never told why to do things. They were just told, do it, do it. And it was all about places to go and things to handle and, and incense to offer and, and, and all that sort of thing. And what to do if your house had leprosy. And, and, and it was all very tactile and just to do it, just do it. But in the New Testament, the church is not just do it. There are things that are prescribed that we must follow and we'll look at those from the word of God. But there's an aspect of the local church which is not just procedural. There's an aspect of the church which is spiritual as well. And I particularly am learning that these days from Sid's ministry through the seven churches in the book of the Revelation. Procedurally, a lot of them were good, but spiritually, a lot of them were bad. And we're going to look at some of those things. So we're thinking today more about how did this whole idea of a local church start and how is a local church composed? Let's think about it. Let's look into Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, we're still in Jerusalem after the coming of the Spirit. The, the day of Pentecost is really the birthday of the church in every sense. 
the church universal and the church local, and we'll discover that the devil hates uh, the church because the church is the body of Christ. And when we get to chapter 4, we're not far along the way. We already find that the religion of the world wants to stop the, the preaching of the gospel. And so we've discovered that Peter and John have been arrested and have been told to stop preaching. And they've been threatened with severe consequences if they continue to preach. Not particularly unlike the 21st century in the Western society, is it really? Because those days could quite easily return. Look what it says in verse number 23. And being let go, that means being released from custody, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said unto them. So already in Jerusalem... There was a place where Christians were gathering that Peter and John knew where it was and when it was. And so they could easily just be let go. They would say, we'll go, what he calls, to their own company. Uh, let's go down a little bit. They report um, what had happened and um, they, they, they um, were starting to pray. And it says this, and when they had prayed, so... One of the things you'll notice, particularly if you read the Acts of the Apostles, I've been immersing myself this week in the Acts of the Apostles, really. That's where I've been this week. The big thing that the local church did, paramount above everything else, was what? They prayed. They prayed together. Now, I've had many a Christian say to me, I can pray at home. And I would say, Amen. I hope you pray at home. I mean, that would be right, wouldn't it, really? If there's something wrong, if we don't, pray at home. But even from its earliest institution, when Christians gathered together, one of the primary purposes for them was to, to pray. They would preach the word and they would do other things. But as you read the Acts of the Apostles, it seems that that is the, the primary characteristic of them. When they get together to pray, they're, they're a praying company. And we'll look at the different ways in which they prayed. So it says this, And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. Um, so a couple of things, just to say in passing here, the local church is the dwelling place of God by his Spirit. And we will learn that as we go through 1 Corinthians, particularly in this next section we're coming, that God dwells now not in temples made with hands, but he did didn't he, in the Old Testament, in the tabernacle, in the temple. But God dwells in the gatherings of his people, in a special way, by his Spirit. And I wanted to show you, particularly as we go on, that the Acts of the Apostles is not really a pattern book for the local church. It's not a prescription, the Acts of the Apostles. It's a description of what happened in the early days. I'll, I'll make that distinction a little later and show you how important that is. But you remember what happened in Acts 2 when they were all filled with the Spirit? Remember what happened? What did they do? They all spoke in various languages so everybody heard the gospel in their own language, right? Look what it says what happens this time when they're filled with the Spirit. They speak the word of God with boldness. There's absolutely no mention of those different languages in that case. And so those who would preach, I'll talk about this on Thursday night actually, those who would preach that the filling of the Spirit is always accompanied by the speaking in strange languages and actually not following the teaching of the Bible at all. 
Because there's lots of places where they're filled with the spirit and other things are, are, are true. Matter of fact, it's very rare. Matter of fact, it's only on one occasion when they're filled with the spirit and they speak with tongues. But we'll, we'll look at that in Thursday. Look at this, what it says. Verse 32. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said they of any of them that thought of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power gave the apostles witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands and houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. And if we go into the next chapter, we'll see very quickly that goes wrong as well, right? Okay. But what am I saying here? This is not Christian communism. Folks, this is not Christian communism. I've spent a lot of time in Canada working with people in Hutterite colonies, for example, who combine all their possessions and they live in a colony. They have nothing they call their own and they live in a kind of Christian commune. That's not what this is saying. It's just saying that people were so interested in each other that they would do anything for their brothers and sisters. That's really what they're saying. They were saying, look, what's mine is yours. And if you, need a, if you need anything that belongs to me, let me tell you, you can have it. You can have it. That's what will happen. And we'll see what, how that gets corrupted in the end. So that's a little bit about some characteristics of the early church. You know, they were prayers. The, the Holy Spirit was dwelling amongst them. And they had a common interest for each other. Let, let, let's go over to chapter 9. Some great things happened very early on in the book of the Acts of the Apostles. Acts 8 is a great um, kind of passage that will help us understand what fundamental Christianity is. Acts 9 is the conversion of Saul. And the conversion of Saul, we're going to read a little bit about the conversion of Saul. Um, you know what happened on the Damascus Road. He had gone to... Um, he had gone to, to, to persecute Christians. The Lord appeared and he got converted. And three days later, he got baptised. And again, can I say this to you folks just kindly? When it comes to the local church, the Bible doesn't envisage a Christian that's not baptised. It's not that there's a prescription. Now that you're a Christian, you must get baptised. Salvation and baptism were so intimately preached and linked together that it just was inconceivable that anybody would profess Christianity without getting baptised. So they would preach, repent and be baptised. That, that, that's what they would preach. And Paul, as far as I can see, it's the longest gap between salvation and baptism in our Bible. It's, it's three days. That's the longest gap I can find. Anyway, that's not my... That, so so my, my point of that is to say that as we go to other places in the Bible, we'll find that a local church is composed of believers who are baptised, baptised believers. That, that's, so that's one of the kind of, not requirements, but that's kind of one of the fundamental characteristics of local church fellowship, that it's a fellowship of baptised believers. That, that's what it is. Look at it says. Verse number um, 19. He's converted, he's, he's baptised, and he's gone to Damascus to persecute Christians. And it says this. Then was Saul certain days with the disciples which were at Damascus. Now there's a thing, eh? Suddenly this guy that hated Christians now wants to be with them. And there's obviously a group of Christians that are at Damascus. And a new Christian that's just baptised. His highest priority is to do what? Go and find Christians. Go and meet with Christians. 
And so that's what he does, and you'll, you'll see what happens there, and straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues that he's the son of God. But it's really what happens when he goes back to Jerusalem that I'm interested in. Look what it says when it goes, um, it says this, and when Saul was come to Jerusalem, verse 26, he assayed, he attempted to join himself to the disciples. Now, obviously, there's no Facebook or Instagram or, or email to get messages back to Jerusalem quickly because when he comes back to Jerusalem, the message of his salvation has not reached them yet. Okay? So all the disciples know in Jerusalem is that Saul of Tarsus left to kill Christians. And now this same man, Saul of Tarsus, is back in Jerusalem and he's knocking at their front door and he's saying, I want to come in. What do they think he's coming in for? They think he's coming in to arrest them and to carry them off, as he's always done, to prison. He says this. But they were all afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. What am I saying? I'm saying to you this, that Christians actually have to need to take care as to who they allow into the fellowship of the local church. You see that? We live in a kind of day and generation where anybody turns up at a church and says, I'm a Christian, and people say, okay, that's fine, in you come, in you come. That's not what happens in the Bible. In the Bible, people are saying, okay, you say you're a Christian, let's just make sure that that's true, eh? Let's just make sure, if you want to join a local church, you need to have a clear Christian testimony. And a clear Christian testimony that you can relate and that can be verified. Let me show you why. Look at this. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared how un, unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way and they had spoken unto him and that he had preached bodily at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So what's happening here is there's evidence that this person's a real Christian. There's evidence that this person's a real Christian. So when he goes to Jerusalem, he says, I want to join myself to the local church. So we're going to read, we're going to learn that that's a, an intention of a, a person. The intention of a, a Christian is to deliberately associate themselves with a local church. There's no, I, what, was, what was the guy's name? I was born under a wandering star. I can't remember what that guy's name was. Somebody will remember that guy, but that's him. That's him. Lots of Christians just kind of move around like wandering stars, right? Wandering stars here, there, and everywhere. Go to Tesco on a Friday, go to Sainsbury's next weekend, and, and all that sort of stuff. And, and you no, know, a Christian deliberately has an intention to say, I'm going to link myself with these local Christians. These are, these are my people. These are my people. And the local church says, that's great, but... Can you tell us, first of all, a little bit of testimony? And Barnabas comes along and he says, you know what, I know that this guy's real. I've been in Damascus, I've seen what's happening, and I can verify that this man truly is a born-again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and is committed to the Lord. So folks, that's why we, <laughs> I hope you don't think we're being picky, but we need to be careful in a local church. Because later on in the Acts of the Apostles, when Paul gets the elders in Ephesus together and he's talking about going away and never seeing them again, and they all week, he says, listen, I need to warn you because the local church is going to come under attack. And one of the ways it will attack is infiltration. Infiltration. And folks, I can think of the Church of England when it was first the Reformed Church of England being a very evangelical and um, gospel preaching church okay I can remember that even in my own life in the Church of Scotland I remember the Church of Scotland being well known for its Presbyterian evangelicalism right okay is that true now why 
Because there's been infiltration, hasn't there? People professing Christianity but bringing unbiblical practices in. And Paul's saying, listen, one of the great dangers of a local church is will face is infiltration. And he says, listen, beware of those from the outside that will come in and from the inside that will go out. And so a local church is not just a kind of a kind of casual gathering of people that have got common interest. No, this is people seriously deciding to associate themselves with a, a faithful testimony of the Lord's people. That, that, that's what it is. But here's the thing, last thing I want to make in the reading. In verse 28, and he was with them, listen to this, coming in and going out. What does that mean? When we go to the uh, when we go to First Thessalonians, one of the characteristics of the Thessalonians church was this: they had turned to God from idols worship coming in. We've come in this morning, haven't we? We've said when we come together to pray, when we come together to worship, we're we're saying to that world, actually, you don't mind if we just leave you out there, please, just for a wee while. We're coming in to worship. We want to come in together, don't we? They turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. And you know what it says in First Thessalonians 1? From you sounded out the word of the Lord. So a local church is not just people that come in. They're people that go out, aren't they? And they don't just go out as individuals like the Lone Rangers. They, they go out as a local church. And a local church has specific corporate gospel testimony involved. And it doesn't mean everybody's involved in every activity, but it's all part of our local church. And whenever we're able to support, we, 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 we're with coming in and going out, aren't we? It, we don't just take one part of the deal. You know, you don't take one side of the coin. You, you take both sides of the coin. And Paul says, listen, I'm committing myself to this local church, and here's how I'm going to do it. I'm in for the whole lot. I'll come in and I'll go out. And he says, I'm with you. I'm with you. So, let me say a couple of things before we finish about the local church, its institution, and its composition. Last week we talked about the, the, the authority that's behind the local church. It's biblical, it's the Bible and the commitment of the believer. And we saw that it's not God's intention that anybody should be alone. You know, and we talked about you know marriage and the family, and we talked about a nation, and we talked about the local church as God's evidence that we're not to be loners, we're to be part of something. And I was actually really um, rebuked on Thursday night with Sid's ministry because I missed out probably the most important together of them all. First Thessalonians four, we're caught up together to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And in Revelation chapter 5, it says, I beheld the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beasts and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000, and thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, well, there's a lamb that was slain. And so the, the ultimate together, the ultimate gathering, is the gathering with the Lord in heaven forever. So that whole concept of gathering together is, is so, so important. In our Bible, we've got three specific institutions that are ordained by God, right? God has ordained the family as a creational institution. Isn't that right? And God ordains that there's order in the family, the roles of the father, the roles of the mother, the roles of the children, and that's a God-ordained institution. God has also ordained the institution of the state 
And we read that in Romans 13. And so, folks, you don't have to be a royalist or a monarchist to honour and acknowledge the passing of the Queen. You don't have to be. That's not saying you're a royalist or a monarchist. It's just saying you recognise the institution that God has ordained in the state. And the new king, he's an institution of God. So there's the institution of God in the family. There's the institution of God in the state, which is ordered. There's also the institution of God in the church. And each one of those institutions has God-ordained directions and order. Every single one of them has to follow God's order. Otherwise, chaos. Isn't that right? What would be, in our society, folks, what would be one of the major underlying causes of the disorder in our nation? Breakup of families. Isn't that right? It's family breakup. And the devil loves to break up families because by breaking up fabrics, he, family, he attacks the very fabric and foundation of society and brings disorder for what God ordains as order. The state. What are the most vile and cruel institutions of state in the world? They're godless ones, aren't they? Atheistic ones. And so when it comes to the church, we've all to be characterised by order, authority, and the, for the glory of God. We, we looked as well last week at those two ways you can use the word church. There's the church universal, which means every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and the church local, which is the visible, practical expression of the church universal and um, since since hymn was a lovely hymn that we finished off with today but the one I had written down was this the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ the Lord she is his new creation by water and the word from heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride with his own blood he bought her and for her life he died and what he means is that writer was saying every Christian every Christian without respect listen to this elect from every nation Yet one o'er all the earth, her charter of salvation, one Lord, one faith, one birth, Ephesians 4. One holy name she blesses, partakes one holy food, and to one hope she presses with every grace endued. And so the church universal composes of every Christian without any distinction, any distinction at all. One faith, one Lord, one baptism. So when we meet a Christian, we don't, we're not interested. We're just glad they're a Christian, aren't we really? We just love to meet Christians wherever they are. However, the local church is quite different. If there's no distinctions in the universal church, no bond, no free, no male, no female, uh, no rich, no poor, in the local church, God has ordained order and authority. Because the local church is his visible expression of what God's order really is. And so God puts in the local church roles, responsibilities, authority and order. We, 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 we said this. We said this last week, that the local church, we must avoid thinking of the church as the building. I know that's the colloquial use of church, but the church is not the building. Remember the illustration, if this hall burned down, you know, the church wouldn't be destroyed. We'd probably meet in the doozy's front room, look at his face when he thinks we're all going to go down his house, eh? <laughs> but we could, we could, couldn't we? 
And that would not destroy the local church. But the other thing I was thinking was last night, there was another, there was Indians came last night and they had a meeting here last night and Duduzi and I were present and John and Maureen were present and it was a, it was a service, not like a service we would have at Bencham Gospel Hall, right? But it was in this building and I was there, but I had no authority to say to them, you know, that was under a different, that was under a different auspices, their local church. It wasn't my business to dictate what they should and shouldn't do. But they were in the same building, in the same place. So this building is not the church. Let me, let me put something to you. That's why I like to use another word. <laughs> now, some people think it's just because I've been brought up a particular way or it's semantics, but I don't think it is. To try and escape the common worldly understanding of church as a building, you know that the word church in our New Testament is the word ecclesia. Ecclesia, which means a called out company, or another word to say it is an assembly of people, an assembly of people. And so I like to talk about the assembly, the people. I think that helps it helps me escape the concept of Bencham Gospel Hall as a church. It helps me understand. So if you hear me talk about the assembly at Bencham, what I mean is you and me. I don't mean the hall. I don't mean the hall. Why don't you think about two things as we think about the local church? Imagine it's a year. 333 AD, right? So that's just after the Lord had died. It's the apostolic days. Either you are living in Jerusalem, where it's highly religious, or you're living in Ephesus, which is Corinth, Thessalonica, which is very pagan, right? And you've heard the gospel, and you've been baptized, and you love the Lord with all your heart. You've heard the gospel. And in Jerusalem, because you're a Christian now, that whole religious world is going to say to you, thank you, but we're not interested. Or in pagan Ephesus and Corinth or Thessalonica, you're living, you're seeing your whole life that you did before in the stark contrast of God's word has been wicked and immoral and you've been converted in AD 33. What are you going to do in Ephesus or Jerusalem? Do you know what you're going to do? You're going to try and find other Christians, aren't you? That's what you're going to do. You're not going to have somebody send a letter to you to say, now you're a Christian, join a church. It's going to be not prescriptive what you're going to do. It's going to be instinctive what you do. You're going to say, where's the Christians? Where's the Christians? Where are they meeting to pray? Where are they meeting to preach? Where are they meeting to hear the word? And now I'm a Christian. Where are they, please? Where are they? You're not going to say, okay, I'll go home and live on my own. Because you don't have a Bible. And you don't have anything to help you. You don't have online helps. You're not going to go home and say, now I'm a Christian, I'm just going to wait to get to heaven. You're going to say, where are the Christians, please? Where are the Christians? Okay. Now, think about 2022. Think about being transposed from Gateshead or wherever it is you live into another country on your own, right? And you just become a Christian and you arrive in a country and a new town and you love the Lord and you've got neighbours that are not Christians and you've got workmates that are not Christians, and you're jettisoned into a country that you've, you've no friends in at all, and you're a Christian, and you love the Lord, what are you going to do? You're going to try and find Christians, aren't you? That's, that, that's what you're going to do. And you're going to be faced in 2000... Supposing you came to Newcastle, do you know what you're going to be faced with? You're going to be faced with a hundred different churches, aren't you, to choose from? Not like the first century now, because in the first century you didn't have anybody to choose from. You just found the Christians, didn't you? But now you're going to be faced with a hundred different churches. You're going to be faced with a church 
that maybe you could go to, you could sit in a nice comfortable cinema seat, they could have a band, you could be a spectator. Really okay? And a true Christian, sure, I don't doubt that, but there's just maybe a 10 minute word and you can go and you can have a feel good factor and that's what you can do. You can do that. Or you could go to George Curry's church and I know George, that's why I'm using and I love George. But George is a strict Anglican who follows the prayer book. You know, and he'll go through the prayer book and he'll go through all the ordinances. Or you can go to another place like Bencham that's got no ceremony, it has got nothing fancy and just loves the Lord and preaches the Lord. And you're going to have this whole choice of spectrum as to where you can go and associate yourself. How are you going to choose? How are you going to choose? Are you going to go to a place that pleases you? Or are you going to go to a place that pleases the Lord? What, what, what are you going to do? Well, actually, that's not a hard question because if you're a real Christian, what pleases the Lord is what pleases you. Isn't that right? Those two things are compatible. So how are you going to find out? You're going to say, okay, Lord, how do I make up my mind? Where's the places that I should gather for the Lord in the name of the Lord Jesus? And you'll get your Bible out and you'll say, does the word of God give us clear instructions or clear indications as to how Christians should gather? The answer is, yes. Isn't that right? So we're getting our Bible out and we're going to say, okay, let's see what's going to happen here. How do, how do we gather? How do we meet? How do we practice? How do we, how do we live? And so we take up something up like the Acts of the Apostles. And we say, how did the first Christians do it? How did the first Christians do it? And there's some things we need to think about in the Acts of the Apostles. We have to understand that the Acts of the Apostles is what we call a transitional book. It's a book that goes from one period to another period. And so sometimes there's a mixture of the old and the new. And it's a transitional book, so it covers a period. So what does that mean? It means it's things that happen in the Acts of the Apostles the apostles because they happened in the acts of the apostles does not mean they're going to always happen for the rest of the church age that that's what that means and we have to really think about that think for example i don't know the acts of the apostles is the birthday of the church isn't it that's church universal and church local right and the way i kind of think about the acts of the apostles it's kind of like the opening ceremony of the olympic games right if you've ever watched the Olympic Games, I was going to use the Commonwealth Games, but the more I think about the opening ceremony, the Commonwealth Games and that bull of Bation that was in the middle of that thing, it became a very idolatrous thing. So we'll not talk about the, the we'll not talk about the Commonwealth Games. Just think about the Olympic Games. What happens at the Olympic Games? Big ceremony, isn't that right? All the all the people are there. All the dignitaries are there. There's a great pomp and circumstance, and things happen at the opening ceremony to say we've arrived. We've opened, let's go. But the opening ceremony only happens in one day. What happens after that? We get down to business. We get down to the real business. And as you go through the Acts of the Apostles, you'll discover that the day of Pentecost is the opening ceremony. It's the big day that says the Holy Spirit has come. And then as you go through the Bible, you'll discover the Acts of the Apostles, you'll see them getting down to business when it comes to local testimony. As you go through the book, you'll discover that the Acts of the Apostles is more descriptive than prescriptive. In other words, it's recording what Christians did instinctively rather than dictating what Christians should do by prescription. 
These are spiritually instinctive things that happen. Did they have to be told to go and pray together? No. They just loved to go and pray together. So nobody phones you up on a Thursday and says, excuse me, it's half past six. Are you ready for the prayer meeting yet? Well, if you're not, you should be. Right? Now, sometimes that's somebody encouraging you. But you know what I mean? Christians didn't think like that. It was descriptive rather than prescriptive. And so, go through the Acts, you'll keep coming across words like together, of one accord, one another. There just was placed in these Christians a spiritual instinct to get together. And a local assembly is the instinctive reaction of Christians to get together. Now, what they'll do when they get together, we'll see. So, when we go down through Acts chapter 5, we discover this, that they were, before, they were drawn together, not driven together. A local church is in a dreadful state if we're driven together. That's why this whole legality thing about, you know, you've got to go to this meeting, you've got to go to all the meetings, you've got to go to all that. Now, it's lovely to be at all the, the gatherings, but if you're only coming because you're being dragged or driven there, you're actually contradicting everything that the Bible teaches about a local church. Because they were drawn together rather than driven together. Well, what's a simple illustration? If ever you leave the light on outside at night and the moths come, you know what happens. You don't have to tell moths to get together. You just have to shine the light and they're drawn together. Isn't that right? So if there's people who love the Lord and who love the Lord's things, when they find a place where the Lord is loved and honoured, that's a place that you're drawn to, isn't it? I hope that's why we're here. That's well, I can't speak for you, but I can speak for me that I don't come here because I'm driven or I'm dragged. I come here because I'm drawn, because I know you love the Lord and I know we want to please the Lord. And that, that's why, and on a Thursday night, I don't have to be swept into coming to the prayer meeting because I know that when we come here, we'll pray for each other, won't we? And we'll lift each other's burdens up and we'll pray for other people and we'll, we'll hear the word of God. And I've got a hunger in here for that stuff. And I, that's what a local church is. So, I was brought up in a local church where they had a register. And I know why. It was, it was actually a good thing because it was a big church and the elders wanted to make sure they were keeping an eye on everybody. Right? But there was, a wee boy with, there was a wee boy with a register. They would sit at the door and they would watch you coming in and they'd tick you off when you come. And if you missed three weeks, right? Boy, the, the, the elders were around to see you. No, they were around to see you for a real reason because they were really concerned and they, and, they, and they loved you and they wanted you to go on but but that's not what a local church is you don't just tick a box they were drawn together it was not a legal requirement a local church is a relationship rather than an agreement folks right so back to acts 9 where paul's converted what does ananias say to paul he says brother saul brother saul so we all want to agree to what we believe, don't we? We all believe that Jesus is the Son of God. We all believe, and we all, agreement is important, folks. But we're not together just because we agree. We're here because we're part of the same family, the Christian family. What we are in a local church is a relationship rather than just a, an agreement. You know, you could go and join the bowling club and sign an agreement for the bowling club to stick by its constitution or the golf club. But it's not the same as a local church, is it? We don't call... We don't call the guys that we play golf with brother and sister. Uh, no. I call John a brother. 
until he beats me, of course. But then that changes things. But you know, you don't you call you call the you call Christians brother and sister. Why? Because we have a special relationship. A local church is not an amalgamation of people that agree. It's a unity of people that are related to each other. We're brothers and sisters in the Lord. And then as you go through your Bible, I'll finish with this. When Paul goes preaching and when Peter goes preaching, they want to see people saved. Of course they do. But when they leave a town, they don't just want to leave people here and there saved. Do you know what they want to leave behind? They want to leave behind a company of Christians that are getting together for the honour of the Lord. So how many of the New Testament letters are written to individuals? You know, only four. How many of Paul's letters are written to local churches? The rest of them. Thirteen. Right? What does that say? It says that Paul was really interested in local churches. So I'm just trying to say, folks, for me, I hope I value our local fellowship in a way that the Bible tells me I should. And we'll look in future about how Christians gather, how Christians order the gatherings, how the structure of personnel is because there's an authority structure within a Bible uh, within a Bible church and I trust that as we go together we'll go together loving the Lord and loving getting together to please the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank thee for the word and it cuts across us so many times and for people like me, Lord, that's known things for so many years we're rebuked when they become too familiar and we lose the joy and the power of them. So this little place, Lord, this little hall is a place where we gather for thy glory because we love thee, Lord. And we pray that we might be real and vital and true in our testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ. Bless us the rest of the day. Remember those that are absent from us. We commit ourselves to thee now in the Lord's name. Amen.